91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. You may have been listening to some content from Converge Media on KBCS airwaves over the past few months. Next is a celebration of this local independent media organization that's seen tremendous growth from covering the protests after the death of George Floyd. KBCS's student volunteer Fadumo Ali and our student fellow Kai Le interviewed Omari Salisbury, founder of Converge Media. Today is the one-year anniversary of Converge Media's morning update show. Salisbury starts off the next segment describing why the morning update was created. We started the morning update show because, you know, at the time there was so much information that was coming out about COVID. Governor Inslee had just basically shut the state down. And we saw that there was so much information, but also misinformation that, that, that was out there. And we knew that we needed to be able to provide curated information to our community. Because of course, a lot of information was, was geared towards the mainstream. And you know, at the, at the time when COVID hit, I remember the thing is, it was a rumor kind of in the black community that black people can't get COVID. It was a white people thing because, you know, some of the early deaths that we saw was that the assisted living homes and misinformation about COVID was out there from the beginning. Um, and we kind of felt it as our, our social responsibility to our community to say, hey, you know, we need to get information out. So the morning update show actually started just as a pop-up. We only thought, you know, it were going to be on air for like two months or something like that, because at the time people were saying, hey, COVID's coming, it's probably going to be gone in a few months. And we thought like, okay, we're going to do this this morning show as a pop up and we'll provide information to the community and then COVID will be gone and we'll move on. But the number one reason, like I said, to start the morning update show was to give real-time, actual, factual, curated information to our community. And when I say our community, you know, I'm not speaking directly to the Black community in Seattle, but also marginalized communities in Seattle and, and BIPOC populations as well. But um, that's where we wanted to center our information because just a lot of information wasn't penetrating to that community. You come from a family of people very involved in the community. Um, how is your family active in organizing work and how has that influenced your social outlook? Yeah, I, I guess you would say that, you know, my my mom really got super active, I guess, here in Seattle. Even what, let me take a step back. So, I mean, just growing up b before being active, so to speak, you know, my, my parents just kept us immersed in, in our culture here in America and in our, our, our global culture. Um, you know, I guess you would say our pan, they were Pan-Africanist or, or, or Pan-Africanist. But um, when you talk about activism here in Seattle, it was when I was 15 years old. It was me and my brother. We actually got beat up by the Seattle Police Department at this East Precinct, the very same East Precinct that was the epicenter there of the Seattle protest. As a young high schooler, and my brother was actually on his way to college down in California, you know, it really galvanized my mom. And uh, over 30 years ago now, she, she started, uh, at the time it was Mothers Against Police Harassment, and it's now Mothers for Police Accountability um, over three decades. And, you know, and she's also at this point, a, a CPC, a community police commissioner, um, but she continuously stayed stayed active here in Seattle and shaping the landscape here, but also not only just in a political sense, but she was always active in school as well. Um, and I mean, it was always a good example. I mean, when we were kids, 
we'd go to all these community meetings. I mean, it was a small kid, man. Be a middle school, younger elementary school, and we're at town halls and things like that. So, um, and and she'd have me speak. I was a small kid, you know, just speaking out there with all these elected officials and everything. Um, and so, unbeknownst, I think all of us uh, from a young age, it put me into a space of one, kind of speaking out for what I felt was right, two, being able to speak truth directly to power. I mean, from a little kid, speaking to, you know, way back when, um, city council members or mayors. And it isn't that I, I would say that I consciously wanted to be an, an, an activist or anything like that, but, you know, that's just the route, I think, that through media we're able to deliver information that the activist community finds valuable. So according to an interview by Dave Fisher of Network X, of you and your mother, Harriet Walden, you were wrongfully arrested and roughed up by a number of police when you were 15 years old for an alleged burnt out license plate lamp. How has that experience influenced you and your lens in covering your community? Well, uh, you know, I mean, my experience, if, if you were in the Central District of Seattle back in those days, many, many moons ago when I was 15 years old, this was a common experience in, in the Central District. I mean, a community that was chronically over-policed and they had what was going on at the time, Operation Weed and Seed, where they felt that they were gonna weed out a certain element and seed in others. And, but, you know, it was, man, policing was, was real different in Seattle then. The police were driving around these Astro vans, jump out, you know what I'm saying? They, they were getting money from the federal government if, you know, for, for people, if they were in gangs, they try to, they, they carry Polaroid cameras with them and try to take your picture to put you in a gang file. Uh, I mean, and so it wasn't even just me per se, like, you know, that incident right there has been echoed hundreds of times of people who lived in the Central District under policing uh, by the Seattle police during that time. But what it taught me, what I took away from that was that, you know, I mean, if you're right, then you need to, to stand by being right. And, you know, we went to jail that night there at the East Precinct. Like I said, the police beat us up. They tried to lie and say that there was tapes of us saying some stuff. And then suddenly, you know, when we asked for the tape, it was called exculpatory evidence. Uh, they couldn't find the tapes. And so then the case was dropped. And then we took a civil suit and we took a civil suit. And I'll be honest with you, the police officers definitely had a jury of their peers that looked just like them and lived in neighborhoods where they came from. And we lost the civil case. But, you know, I, I was able to go through a process. And I think going through that process, even though we lost the civil case, you know, it, it did give a sense of resolution. And there's so many people that encounter police brutality where there is no sense of, of, of resolution. There is nothing that goes to court. There is no case or anything else. And, you know, oddly enough, my lawyer, one of the lawyers on that case all those years ago was a, a, a young lawyer who just graduated, I believe, from Harvard, Andrea Brennecke. And um, young lawyer on that case, and Andrea Brennecke now is in the attorney general's office down there in, in Olympia all these years later. And what was the specific event that influenced your belief system? I don't think there is a specific event. I think that, you know, that, that it's the, the, the way that my parents, that they raised us, you know, it's the fundamental values of let your word be your bond. 
of you know how you do anything is how you do everything that there's never a wrong time to do the right thing and never a right time to do the wrong thing so there isn't one specific incident in my life that shaped my outlook on life or my values or my morals or my principles i think that is the constant shaping uh of my my upbringing that that has really you know shaped a lot of who i am right now and also kind of put me in a position to take life as it comes and, and to be as, as fair and have an optimistic outlook on things. So um, you heavily covered Chaz and CHOP um, this past year during the Black Lives Matter protest. There were intense interactions with law enforcement in a very challenging social climate during the last year of Trump's administration. And you were in the thick of the activity covering these events surrounded by many other people um, with diverse needs and interests. How did you manage during this time? Well, I think I just managed kind of like, you know, how I've always managed. You know, I, I've spent the majority of my career, actually a big part of my career, working across um, diff uh, different countries, um, you know, in the continent of Africa. Been to like 25 countries there, lived in several countries in East Africa and also the Middle East. And, um, you know, kind of covering things from, from a lens of, well, you know, let's take it as we see it. You know, um, when it comes to the to the Seattle protest, I knew that I really, let me back up. I knew that I had a choice to make in covering the Seattle protest. Um, to, to really be a journalist or a protester. Um, it would be impossible for, for me to say that I wasn't impacted by that crime against humanity, the murder of George Floyd, eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I knew that day that, okay, well, I've got two ways to go about this because I was so impacted. I, I can get into the streets with everybody else, or you know what? I could grab my camera, um, the one I used for the protest, for the most part was my iPhone. I said, I could grab my camera and I could just go and try to tell the story as it is. And I made a commitment from there to be like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna bring the camera. I'm gonna put it in front of many people as possible, show what I can and let the camera really tell the story. And a lot of times you hear me on tape, it was like, man, you know what? I'm not part of Black Lives Matter. I'm not part of the protests. I'm not part of anything. I'm just a journalist out here trying to, trying to cover it. And so being able to come from that perspective, um, you know, I mean, I never took anything personal. I mean, for the most part, we got out there, we get tear gas. Now, it was horrible breathing the tear gas and horrible getting hit by rubber bullets and everything else. But I put myself in harm's way because I knew that we wanted to cover the story. But I also knew that, like, you know, if if I gave in to, to anger, if I gave in to, to rage and everything else, that, you know, I might not be able to, to cover the, the, the protests in a fair way. And, I mean, there was a lot of things as well that happened and a lot of tragedies that happened during CHOP, where you had the murder of Lorenzo Anderson and the murder of Antonio Mays Jr. I was there on the freeway when the, the car came and hit Diaz Love and Summer Taylor. And of course, Summer Taylor ended up passing away. And so, you know, impacted by so many different things, whether on the police side of things or on the protest side of things and, and everywhere in between, but making a firm commitment to say that, hey, you know what? I'm here to tell this story. 
I'm here to take it as I see it. I'm here to say if something's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And that was an insulation that I was able to carry with me throughout the Seattle protests that, you know, allowed me to, yeah, I mean, there's lots of live streams, man, where, you know, I mean, something funky would happen. They'd tear gas us. And, uh, you know, I mean, 30 minutes later, we're just laughing, talking about we're waiting for the Mariners season to begin again. Um, and that was kind of the attitude to take at it, that it was like, this was serious, but we didn't take it too serious. That's awesome. And being in the middle of all of that, did you feel that and witnessing the car um, and all those events, did you feel that it impacted just like your mental state or your overall mental health? Yeah, no, of course. Um, and, you know, this, these are things that, that we're still kind of unpacking over here at Converge. There's a lot of people that covered the protests and people, a lot of people, especially CHOP, when CHOP ended, they went home or they covered, you know, different aspects and they went home or, you know, moved on to other stories. This is still all alive and well to us. We, we kind of made a commitment to ourselves and as well to our viewers that we were going to see this story to the end. The story now is in the state legislature where the state legislature has taken up a lot of different bills on police accountability and also downtown in, in city hall, meaning that like, this has never stopped for us long enough to really unpack some of the stuff that we saw and we witnessed. I mean, it was horrible. I mean, I, I can tell you this is preparing for the one year anniversary. I couldn't make it through the footage. Um, you know, months ago, I could watch the footage and kind of be okay, but like I, we couldn't, couldn't make it through the footage. It's, it's too traumatizing. It's hard to believe that we were actually out there in the middle of some of that. So I, I, you know, the, the total impact on my mental health, just to be honest with you, is still to be determined because I don't think that, that we've collectively here at Converge, and I know myself, taken enough time to really address a lot of the things that, that we saw. Um, that, you know, I mean, these aren't regular things that are supposed to happen. Like you're not supposed to be breathing in tear gas or having flash grenades explode next to your head. You're not supposed to be hit with these rubber projectiles. You're not supposed to witness murders. Um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, taking a toll and, and ultimately all of these kind of things definitely need to be unpacked. And we're, we're, we're hoping that this story that we said that we were gonna stick with to the end, um, that, that there are some reasonable resolutions, meaning that things are moving in the direction um, that, that were the original reasons why a lot of people got into the streets in the first place. In relation to that, there's an expectation in journalism that journalism studies to be neutral and objective. How do you navigate this as you cover a deeply intense time in our community? Yeah, I mean, you need to be neutral uh, and objective, which is impossible, though. I mean, because we're all we're all human. But, you know, the biggest thing for me is I didn't enter into the protest with an agenda. My only agenda was to be able to try to show the truth and tell the truth to the best of my ability. And I know who I'm accountable to. You know, I'm not accountable to. Uh, a media organization or a political group or a candidate or an ideology, I'm accountable to my community. I'm accountable to our community elders and to, to the people that make up our community. And in that sense, then it was real easy for me to just be out there and like we say, call it as we see it, because that's the expectation of the community that I come from. And so I didn't struggle 
where a lot of other um, journalists did. It was a lot of activists, what we call activist journalists out there. I wouldn't necessarily put myself in that category because a lot of times, you know, I didn't have a predetermined outcome. And, and we saw, I mean, to from, from far right to far left that, you know, there was a lot of people that were covering the protests where they had a predetermined outcome of what they wanted to see. The other thing is, I will tell you this though, I do have a bias in all of this. And when you say that people need to be neutral and objective, I did have one bias. And that bias is that, man, we want to see a better Emerald City. And, you know, there was there was a lot of times where Converge, I feel, would be much bigger right now if we would have accepted all the national shows that, that wanted me to be on air. We from, from people from far right shows on big media platforms, the far left shows, but I know that the, at the end of the day, their narrative of why they wanted me to come on air was to drive a larger wedge in our city. And of course, um, for Converge, you know, us being on big national platforms helps us grow our, our, our brand and our viewership. Um, but, you know, we turn that down because it's like, is this going to be helpful for Seattle? The same thing with our footage. So many people, they wanted to buy our footage and and make documentaries and uh, and spin events in their own way. And we never sold anything, we never sold any footage to, to anybody because we're like, man, what's the greater good that's gonna come out of this for our city? Um, and, you know, being, being that the end result that at Converge Media we were seeking is really, like I said, a better Emerald City, um, a way for people to communicate better, a way for people, even if they don't agree with each other, but to find a way to understand. And, you know, these are core tenets of Converge Media. Um, you know, nav navigating a space of trying to be as, as honest and fair and transparent as possible, it wasn't difficult at all. So given your activity in the community and having covered Chad Chop, what is necessary to make impactful change in our society? I think that people really have to want to be the, the, the change they want to see. It sounds like a slogan, but it's for real. I mean, what we've seen here in Seattle is that in a lot of spaces, there's a leadership gap. Um, it's, it's just glaring and it's apparent. But then also on the flip side, this is what happens when we as the citizen stakeholders of the Emerald City, when we outsource leadership and we outsource accountability, it looks like, you know, somewhat in some cases, us, the citizens have been on autopilot for a long time in our city. Um, and then we woke up in crisis and found out that there wasn't leadership, that there wasn't communication, that there wasn't understanding, there wasn't enough people who knew how to build bridges. There wasn't enough people who knew how to, to, to listen to the next person, even if they didn't agree and, and try to forge a way forward. I think that the best thing that people can do here in our fair city for the change they wanna see is be involved, be involved. Um, and you know, we, we've put a lot of trust in elected officials and in, in my opinion, I think that we've been disappointed. And what that means is that we have to be accountable. We have to, to look more into things. We have to be more willing to get in, engaged in processes. And we also have to dig deeper into topics. There's too many people, way too many people who see a, a soundbite or a headline and assume that to just be fact and because it reinforces their political ideology. These are big issues here in our city. And I don't think that we're really gonna see meaningful change because let me be clear, 
city council can pass a law or a resolution or an ordinance and things like that, right? But, you know, a, a different political regime comes in, they can reverse those. If we want real sustainable change in our city for it to be the city we want it to be, people's hearts and souls need to change. People's viewpoints on things need to change. You can't legislate someone's heart condition. You can't legislate that. We see that all across America. And, and so we need to find a way to get a better understanding of all of our citizen stakeholders here of what we want a better Seattle to be and get everybody on board. What would you say is the importance of independent media in this region? Oh my goodness, fantastic question. It is of the utmost importance. And you know what, to be honest with you, uh, it was a pretty big honor. The Seattle Times named Converge Media. We were number four of their, their top, I guess, 20 heroes of 2020. They named Converge Media and the need for independent media of how important that it is. It's an independent lens that, that sheds so much light. And when you talk about the Seattle protests and quite a few other big stories throughout the year, it was an independent lens. Um, you know, and we're, we were just able to do a lot of stuff that, that, that some of the mainstream media couldn't do. I mean, some of the stuff, for example, I mean, it makes sense. For example, a lot of the big cameras, the big news, they couldn't really go inside of the chopping, not because the reporters and the camera operators didn't want to, but it was because of security concerns, it was corporate media, you know, with, with insurance policies and all these kind of things. The independent media, we weren't, we weren't stopped by that. There was nothing stopping us in corporate infrastructure from, from getting after stories. And also the accessibility early on in the, in the protest, people really took what the Seattle Police Department put out in their press releases as the God's honest truth. And a lot of times the mainstream media would, would, would very much just, just, um, just, reprint or rebroadcast whatever the Seattle Police Department said. A perfect example of that is June 1st. We call it the pink umbrella day, the flashpoint. And the SPD had put out a statement saying that protesters sparked a riot. But the tape clearly shows that everything really started when an officer grabbed that pink umbrella and they wrestled for it back and forth. But the mainstream media went well, right exactly what the SPD said, you know, for the most part. Um, but it was having other people on the ground, like myself and, and several other independent outlets that gave a different perspective, said, no, that's not the case. Another example is when the Seattle Police Department on June 8th, when they abandoned the East Precinct, they put out a statement saying that they were just reducing the footprint, no big deal, this and that. I was there and I was tweeting like, man, these guys are abandoning. And a lot of the big media pushed back on me like I was fake news. And so I had to go live on my phone. And I'm like, no, look, the, the precinct's boarded up. There's fencing there. There's some of everything else. But, you know, I mean, that's another thing of being able to challenge a narrative and challenge a narrative even at the highest levels of saying like, hey, this isn't correct. This isn't true. And I mean, independent media is, is really where the leaders, especially early on in covering the protests, I think, uh, you know, weeks into it, the larger media kind of figured out and they have a lot of resources and things like that. But if it wasn't for independent media being on the ground of the Seattle protests, I think that, you know, um, the world wouldn't have really saw what happened here last summer in the way that they did. You're listening to The Grit on 91.3 KBCS Community Radio. I'm Yuko Kadama. 
Check out KBCS Stories at kbcs.fm or look for the KBCS podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. We take you back to the KBCS interview with Omari Salisbury, founder of Converge Media, known for their coverage of the protests on Capitol Hill during 2020. You had earlier about me in 20 different African countries, having worked in the Middle East. And how has that global experience helped shape your local reporting here in the Emerald City? Oh, man, it's another one. I, I like when people talk about my experience overseas. So let me tell you, I like to tell people I grew up in an African media house. Um, you know, spending, uh, let's see, 2004, seven, like 18 years almost back and forth. Um, and the experience over there, like when I first when I first got over there in the Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, it was the first country I was working in. And I mean, it was a challenging experience. You know, you wake up in the morning, you might have electricity, might not. There might be airtime because everything's prepaid in your phone. It, it might not. The Internet might be working. It might not. The road might be washed out. It might not. You get to your office. You know, is there power there? Is the generator working? You go to print. And, you know, the printers aren't networked. You can't print. You got to get a flash drive. You need to go to an internet cafe, print your stuff out, and, and then try to get on air. I mean, it was a challenge. It's not so much like that these days, but it was so hard. The grind was so hard. But guys still made the news happen every single day. Every day. In working in these African media houses and seeing the commitment of the journalists and the production people and every day being in those difficult environments, man, that shaped me and it crafted me. And, and the work ethic that I returned back to America with is like on a whole nother level. That's why it was like people were like, hey, man, I can't believe you're out there streaming like for eight hours. And I, and I kind of chuckled to myself and I'd be like, my friend, if you would have seen the stuff that we were doing over there, like, you know, try going into the middle of the Maasai Mara or something and trying to get a satellite signal to, to, to uplink or downlink with no satellite finder. And you're looking off into the sky to see where a, a satellite's in geostationary orbit. So I'd be like, man, I had everything that's difficult to do. I had to do it every day for years. And, and man, you know, and it, it really honed my skills and the appreciation for the work and knowing that like there's no shortcuts. Um, and the other thing is, is that working across all these different countries and cultures and everything else is so much of a different perspective um, just in a world view. I, I, I try to look at things, you know, in a global view as well. It was an interesting conversation that I was having with a group of people who are in the country illegally, here in the United States illegally, they're from Latin America. And, you know, not in a bad way, but one of, one of the individuals was like, well, you don't know what it's like to have to hide from immigration and be in fear. I said, yes, I do. Do you know how many times I overstayed my visa in these countries that I was in because I didn't have money to go and renew my visa and immigration would come and sweep our offices and people would hide me in the closet so I didn't get arrested from immigration? I know what it is to have to sneak in and sneak out of a country. But it was such an enlightening conversation because I gave it to them as being migrant workers illegally working in the U.S. I was a migrant worker illegally working in a lot of a lot of countries across the continent of Africa, especially early on. I didn't have a lot of resources, an independent journalist. I tell people I've snuck into more countries than more people have visited in a lifetime. 
But having that perspective of what it is and, and spending so much time, almost 60 countries uh, around the world I've visited, to be able to come and give that perspective here in the Emerald City. Also, I can put something in perspective. People talk about a homeless situation here, like in Seattle and in slums and things like that in Seattle. But I've been to Kibera in Nairobi where, you know, 250,000 people are the side of a mountain. It's the biggest slum in, 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 definitely on the continent of Africa. So I have context, you know, it's like, yeah, this is bad. I'm like, yeah, I've really seen bad. I was in Nairobi when there was a bombing there on, on Electric Avenue. I was over there in, in, in Turkey when there was some civil up unrest there. I've really seen civil unrest in a major way. And so coming back here to the Seattle protest, I was in Bahrain. I was in Bahrain where it was big civil unrest there. So coming back and even reporting on the Seattle protest, I'm able to give some contrast and comparison of what I've seen in other places. Very insightful. So in reflection um, of the past year, what was some takeaways? A few things. One, about our city. I don't think that we're as polarized as people want to make it seem. I think that there's really a, a, a lot of people who, man, they just they just want the truth. It doesn't need to be through these rose tinted glasses or any other color tinted glasses. And I think that's why Converge is kind of thriving in this space is because, man, we just want to be able to tell it like we see it. And if there wasn't an appetite for that in Seattle, then we wouldn't be thriving. And it's good to, to realize and understand that. Another takeaway is, Seattle isn't as, isn't, I, I was surprised, big black guy loud from the Central District. I, I didn't really think that we would have as big of like white viewership uh, and support as we do. And I always assumed, I was like, man, you know, these white people aren't going to want to watch or see what we're talking about. You know, and that was a, a misguided assumption based on race that I had and that, you know, and then what I found out is that there's a lot of people here in Seattle and beyond, irregardless of your color and what you look like and how you sound, man, they just, they just want information and good conversation and insight. So that was something refreshing that I take away. Um, another thing is that hard work pays off. This is what people see with Converge I tell people that, and that's why I was saying is we had been around for some years, but but before um, the protests and before COVID, but we just been working, and you know I would uh, I would write in our blog back then and post a story about economic development or gentrification in the Central District. Thirty people would read it. Hey, yeah, thirty people, or then maybe something a hundred people. Every once in a while, I'd hit the jackpot. Maybe a thousand people would, would read an article I wrote. But that didn't deter me. And we kept at it, kept writing articles, kept recording podcasts, um, kept taking pictures, kept at it every day, stayed committed. Just knowing that one day I used to tell everybody, I was like, man, this is just us being in the gym. We got to be ready. We don't know when it's going to happen. But one of these days, we're going to get called into the game. And it turns out that's what happened in Seattle protests. But we were ready. And we were only ready because we just stayed committed, knowing that, man, if we stay at this long enough, an opportunity is going to is going to open up. And, um, you know, that crack in the door appeared last year, um, unfortunately, around crisis, first with COVID 
and then with the Seattle protests, but the fact that the love of media, the love of journalism, the, the work ethic and the commitment, we were prepared to step into that crack, into that void, and not only step into it, but continue to grow. Have one more question and then I'll pass it on to Kai. Um, what are your future hopes for Converge? Wow. So, I mean, our, our future hopes is to, in the immediate kind of future, in the short term, is to grow our, our market presence um, into Portland and into other areas in, in the Northwest. The vision is to uh, be the leading video content provider around culturally relevant news and information that impacts Black people and people of color. I think that we're already the leader for sure for the Pacific Northwest. There's no other uh, media company that's producing as much high level video content almost every day than Converge Media. But we want to expand our footprint. We want to be able to tell stories down there in the Rose City, down in Portland, and even over in Spokane. So in the immediate future, we want to be able to tell more stories across the Pacific Northwest. Thanks, Amari. This has been um, a pleasure to be a part of and listening on. Going back to your work with, on Converge Media, what are some of your favorite or proudest projects? Wow. I mean, that's an excellent question. Can, can, I, can I answer first by saying what I'm most proud of? Ab absolutely. Whatever you choose. So I would say this, right, is that when people ask what we're most proud of, here at Converge, and especially around this morning update show, it's the fact that our neighborhood is proud. Mm. Our community, they're so they're so proud of us. In the very first episode, we said that we wanted to be able to make something to make our community proud. Big Mama and them, our aunties and uncles, our community members, so people can say like, man, those are some kids from the Central District, from Garfield High School that made good, and. It's an every day. Yeah, I get emotional even talking about this. What a great question. It, every day, the sense of pride that our community has for Converge. You know, they're so proud of us and they uplift us. There's absolutely no award, no, 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 no anything that compares to being able to go to from from 23rd and Jackson or Union or Cherry, you know, the Othello, Henderson, Skyway, everywhere in between. And, and people just tell us how proud they are of us. And other things that we're so proud of is that people look now, the journalism and media is something viable. You know, I mean, a lot of times in our community, uh, a lot of young people look at things and, and they don't see themselves in that field. You know, traditionally it's like, oh, I want to go into music or sports or something like that. Now people are talking about media and journalism. We get young kids now who want to learn how to podcast and how they can do video and some everything else. Like we're, we're changing the view of what people in our neighborhood think is possible for young people. I mean, so many times when people see us on the news, it's not a, it's not a good thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and for months, our community saw me and Trey Holiday and on, on national and international platforms. And they're like, yo, those are our guys. 
Those are our people. There's absolutely nothing I'm more proud of than the fact that our community is proud of us. Um, that being said, I think that um, of all the all the stuff that we've done for the last 12 months, which I guess looking back has kind of been a lot, but um, I'm most proud of the fact that no matter what, the morning update show came on every day that it was supposed to, um, even through the Seattle protest, which was difficult. I mean, it was very, very hard to, to be out there all night and then be on air just, just a few hours later. And why we're proud of that is because, like I said, that show wasn't started to, to cover the protest. That show was started to give news and information to our community. We've been able to continuously do that. We've grown our relationship with, with organizations like Public Health Seattle King County and deliver the best information that we can to our community around COVID, about around resources. Um, you know, it was interesting when this show started, I told everybody, all volunteers who worked on the show, I was like, man, I can guarantee you an audience of two, which would be like my parents who will be watching. We don't know who else will watch. So we started there with a guarantee of audience of two to now, you know, mayoral candidates. When they come and they, they're announcing for mayor, they come on our show. Um, when people are running for office, they come on our show. Mayor Durkin comes on our show to update our community of what's going on. So I think the, the biggest thing that I would take away as well and that we're proud of is that we were able to grow the influence of our community. Our community matters. People know that they have to come here and talk to Converge because they're talking now to our community. Our community has a larger voice and influence in City Hall and politics and everything else. And in that, in that fact, Converge is just a conduit. We're just a bridge. We're just where our community and, and the political environment and, and different factors all literally come together and converge for information. And we're really proud of that. As you're getting large, are you still able to depend on community for support? Yeah, well, so I'll start there. 100%, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be on air if it wasn't for community support. You know, we don't, we don't have any money. No one gave us a grant or whatever. We, we're, we're out here off of, you know, it's our $5 family. You know, people, people, people donating $5 here and $10 there. And that's what keeps us on air. But that also lets us know that we're doing the right thing. Because if we weren't, people wouldn't support, they wouldn't donate. And so, you know, I mean, we're never going to migrate from, from our community. We're never, you know, the day we do that, then it's no longer, we don't need to be in this business anymore. The most important things that we do is is these kind of conversations here when we're talking to young people and we're talking to our elders you know totally unfazed by a lot of these other things that happening in um uh like i said a lot of awards and accolades and everything else our community is absolutely the most important thing i'm really proud of this moment right here because it shows that like man you know our, our heart ain't changed no matter what else has changed around us our commitment to, to, to staying connected to community, our commitment to staying connected to young people is still there, is still intact. Our moral compass is still correct. It's still focused on community. And I would say any, any words of encouragement is, man, don't give up. Too, too many times, especially right now, young people, you know, it's, it's, it's a fast food world these days. 
And I know so many people, they want the instant gratification of this and that. And don't give up. Man, you, you got to got to believe in yourself. You know, I, all that world experience that I had, I came back here and I couldn't even get a job. I couldn't even get a job interview. And it took it, it took a minute to realize I am more important than the algorithm. You know, the algorithm and LinkedIn took somewhere and said that, that I wasn't valuable. But you know what? You cannot let an algorithm determine your self-worth. You can't let an algorithm determine your self-value, man. You just got to stay after it and, and realize that man, it's these failures. Oh, I could talk to you for hours about how many failures, how many heartbreaks. It's long flights home from overseas. And in those long flights, you cry out all the tears from your disappointment. So when you land back in Seattle with nothing, you know, you'll find a way to pull yourself together and try again. And so, you know, I'll just tell people, if this is what you want to be, whatever it might be, for me, it was media, whatever you believe in, bet on yourself, you know, believe in yourself, stay committed. Don't let the failures get you down because that's what's going to build character and sustain your career in the future. That was Omari Salisbury, founder of Converge Media, speaking with KBCS's Fadumo Ali and Kai Le. You can find out more about Converge Media at wherewheconverge.com. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.